Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We spoke earlier today to Gavin Lockyer, who's the MD of Arafura Resources, their NASX listed rare earths mining company with assets in Australia. And if you want our thoughts and opinions on the conversation and indeed the company itself, you can find that at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club, where you can also find detailed company reports, uh, commentary from market experts from around the world on a variety of commodities and companies. There's also training videos. Um, there are summaries of other interviews that we've done just to save you a bit of time. And of course, there's a thriving community of investors on there sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other. So go along now and sign up for cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. Gavin, how are you doing, sir? I'm good, thanks. How are you going? Not too bad, mate. Not too bad. But I'm not sitting here in the sunshine like you. How are things over there? Oh, that's true. Yeah, look, we're quite lucky here in Perth, Western Australia. We've been able to walk around quite freely for quite a period of time. So, yeah, much, much better off than other parts of the world. For, for sure. Um, is it barbecue weather yet? Uh, it's jealous. getting there. It was on the weekend, but it's raining now. Good, I feel better. Right. <laughs> so, Gavin, we, we've not spoken before and we've not heard the Arafura story um, before either, so I'm looking forward to it. But can you uh, kick off, first of all, with just a one-minute overview of the business, then we can pick it up from there. Sure. Look, Arafura is developing the Nolan's Rare Earth Mine, um, which is in Central Australia, in the Northern Territory of Australia. Uh, and Rare Earth Mines are not all the same, um, as I'm sure many of your uh, viewers would uh, would know. Uh, ours is particularly uh, good because it's enriched in NDPR or neodymium praseodymium. And these are really the building blocks of uh, high performance, powerful magnets that are um, critical to e-mobility and renewables. And uh, obviously with uh, COVID highlighting a heap of uh, issues and, and a lot of economies looking to grow their businesses out of COVID uh, using renewables and e-mobility, we see that um, you know we're, we're gonna hit a sweet spot in the marketplace fairly soon. Okay, hoping to time, time the market right. So, I mean, how long have you been at this? Look, the company was listed in 2003, but um, and and that sounds like it's a long time for uh, just to get to the phase where we're at, which is completion of feasibility study. But the reality is, is that not any uh, two projects are the same, and 95% um, of all projects are based in China, and um, exchange of information is extremely. Uh, tough and extremely tight as they've always wanted to control the market. So we've done a lot of R&D, we've been developing it, uh, developing our flow sheet over a number of years and uh, that uh, accumulated in our feasibility study being released in February 2019. Yeah, yes, I saw the DFS. I mean, I'm just, I'm just interested in this because again, for people new to this, sometimes you don't appreciate how long these things can take. So what, what were you doing for the last 17 years in terms of moving things forward? Well. Obviously, there's your expiration phase, which um, <clears throat> for us, uh, like any junior explorer, it's about trying to tap the market. You you do a bit of drilling, you find a bit, you go back to the market, do a bit more. So that was probably, uh, we've probably spent about 200 million Aussie dollars on the project to date, uh, and probably about 50 million of that would be in drilling. The rest of it has just been in metallurgy and hydrometallurgy and unlocking the flow sheet um, in the best, most efficient manner that we can. So lots of test work, lots of piloting, uh, yeah, lots of activities in, in that regard, uh, including our uh, environmental approvals. Okay, 200 million. What's your market cap today? 
Uh, it's about a um, about a hundred million at the moment. Right. Okay. So you've got a bit of catching up to do there in terms of moving this thing yeah. forward, right? And then when you do move mm, it forward, definitely. you've still got a bit of catching up to do. So maybe we should talk about what you have, where, where you are today. You talked about the DFS that you did in 2019, obviously, and, your, and the EIA you mentioned there. So have you got mm -hmm. everything that you need in place to be able to have constructive conversations around financing? Is there any, going to be any holdups? Uh, definitely not. No, look, all the technical aspects of the project uh, are absolutely nailed. Um, we have, as I said, environmental approvals. Uh, we've got our mining licenses granted. Um, you know, our focus right now is all around uh, offtake and sales agreements, uh, discussions with financiers and, um, and potential strategic partners. Okay, can you just talk to me around the, some of the numbers on the DFS, just to remind people kind of what this project looks like in terms of you know, payback, cost, capex, et cetera? Yeah, uh, look, like uh, all, all rare earth projects, uh, they're quite uh, capital intensive. So our, our uh, capital cost is around a billion Australian dollars. Um, Obviously, that's a big jump from a, a market cap of 100 million. Um, but uh, what we have been managed to do through all our test programs is actually unlock the natural geology of, of our ore body. Um, it's hosted in a phosphate ore body. So we actually are able to extract that phosphate as a phosphoric acid, which gives us a revenue credit against our neodymium, praseodymium uh, oxide uh, operating cost. And what that actually translates to in dollars and cents is around the operating cost of about US $25 a kilogram, which we believe puts us in the lowest cost quartile of any producer in the world, including the Chinese. And that's important because, as I said, China controls this market. It's got about 95% of, of global production. And uh, obviously, if you're going to try and compete and take customer share away from, from China, you need to be able to prove that you can do it in an efficient manner. The other natural advantage of Nolan's is it's a, a really, really big deposit. We've got at least 40 years life of mine and it's open at depth. So it can, uh, it, it, you know, I speak to my geos and they tell me, you know, this will be mined by their grandchildren. But um, of course, under the chalk regulations, we can only state that we have a forty-year life of mine. So, okay, so let's 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 break that down again. Again, just to help people understand that where you're at and some of the, some of the battles you may be having internally in terms of how you go forward. Because a billion Aussie, a billion anything's quite big, but a billion Aussie, it's a, it's a big chunk of change. Um, what sure. are what are the barriers that you're coming up against? Because you're going to look at different ways of structuring that. I'm sure. Um, but even no matter what you call that money, it, people are going to be looking for you know certainty from you. So the DFS is one thing, the metallurgy is you know they're going to need to understand that. But ultimately, they're going to want to see that following the pilot, you are successfully putting offtake agreements together. So where are you in the process? Look, uh, and, and you, you touched on the pilot again, and it's probably worth explaining. We actually um, have piloted at a significant scale, and that is as a result of um, uh, other rare earth companies outside of China that have um, tried to get into operation, and we've tried to learn from their mistakes, and, and therefore one of those things was to try and uh, de-risk the project from a technical um, perspective as much as we could. So we, we, we took a, over a year of piloting uh, at scale where we took 12 tonnes of material, put it through the various units of operations. And um, most recently, we have produced rare earth 
oxide product that was on specification, which we could then send off to our potential customers for qualification. And that leads into the second part of your, or the actual, the first part of your question, which was around where do we sit? So we, we don't want to compete with China head on. Um, China has made very clear uh, a China, China made in China 2025 strategy where it wants to be the world's leader of um, EVs and EV components. And they are the only country in the world that can currently go from what we say mine to magnet. Uh, they have the entire supply chain. Now we aren't going to go all the way to a magnet. We are producing a rare earth oxide, which is an intermediate product, which then has to be converted to a metal alloy magnet component electric vehicle. So what we have done in terms of our offtake, we have target, targeted some tier one Chinese magnet manufacturers who have existing uh, large export businesses back out of China into EU, Korea, Japan, and the US uh, in the first instance. And then as we've slowly built up our, um, our engagement and our network in the uh, marketplace, uh, we are now also talking to ultimate end users. So automakers, auto component makers, wind turbine makers um, globally, but predominantly in Europe, uh, and uh, Southeast Asia um, for potential offtake of material. And so our long-winded answer to your question, but um, it, it's, a, it's critical to our funding strategy. So it's probably worth taking some time here because um, what, what we are endeavoring to do is, is saying to those customers, look, we will deliver our rare earth oxide to your preferred magnet supplier or and have it toll treated, and then it will end up into your product. And that gives the supplier and, and the, the European customers are particularly really big around um, ESG components of their supply chains at the moment. So we give them provenance of supply from Australia through their preferred supplier of magnet or uh, component and then back into those, those um, markets. So we're at varying degrees of um, uh, discussions and, and offtake discussions with those customers. All of them are non-binding at this point in time. And uh, we are working through a process, uh, hopefully that we get some more binding uh, contracts in place in the very near term, because it, as I said, it's critical to our debt funding strategy. Okay, I mean, companies at your stage are always talking to anyone who will talk to them, right? So mm. I guess what I'm trying to get at is, what's your precise plan? Because I noticed like phrases in your PowerPoint, like China's denying capital for new development, China threatening to restrict rare earth supply. And you've got the Australian government at loggerheads with the Chinese government, and you've got the Chinese saying, you know, made in China effectively. Mm. How, how do you square up talking to the Chinese now in, in that scenario? Well, as I said, the, the groups that we're talking to in China, they're actually concerned about their own rare earth, uh, their own market, their own customers, because they are not necessarily aligned with the Made in China 2025 strategy. Their existing customer base sits outside China and they are concerned that they might not be able to get raw material, which we can provide for their cust existing customer base. So that's how we can justify that. The other thing, um, when we're talking with governments in particular, and you mentioned the Australian government that we've been working with on the critical minerals side of things, they understand that um, 
there's parts of the processing flow sheet that aren't done anywhere else. And so by necessity, the rest of the world, even if they don't like it, will have to go through China at a point in time. And we're trying to minimise the impact of material going into China and then being sort of absorbed in, uh, in China domestic consumption. Okay, so what do you tell me a bit more about the conversations? Because you go no binding contracts at the moment. Okay, there's no binding offtakes no. at all. Mm-hmm. Um, how long have you been at it? Um, in like earnestly, probably about eight months now. In terms of um, sitting down, offering, exchanging terms, and so on and so forth. But we've been talking with customers for a long, long time because we knew ultimately that our customer was going to be a long way away. The customer with the balance sheet, I should say, which is what we're dependent on to get our funding, is a long way away from a mine in Central Australia. And so we've been over many, many years talking to customers all around the world, um, large organisations you would know, you probably drive one of their vehicles, um, and, and making sure that they understand this is what's coming, this is what's coming. And as I said, COVID has really highlighted it. You, for instance, um, uh, in March, I think uh, the Volkswagen factory in uh, Wolfsburg had to close ahead of Germany shutting down for COVID. And then the reason was they couldn't get rare earth magnets out of their factories in China to go into their electric cars. So COVID has highlighted something that's always been there. It's just um, we're, hopefully, we're hopeful that these off-taking discussions that we've been having for a long time now become a bit more escalated um, as some of these end users see the urgency around them. Okay, and because there's, there's I, again, I just need you to help me understand the process that, that, that you're planning, okay? So there's off-take agreements, which is one thing, and then there's a mm-hmm. billion dollars, which you're going to need to um, go and find from somewhere, okay? So the off-take yep. is just an agreement to agree that you're going to supply some stuff, some stuff for, down the line when you're producing, right? So, th- is there any money from the offtake side? Are people talking about helping you in any way, just on on, on that side of things? Um, uh, there may be some discussions uh, that occur where, if they want certainty of supply, um, where they could help us out is maybe take an equity position in in the company. Yes, definitely. Um, what we are more focused on is is probably trying to keep it more financial, where there might be a floor price in there that suits a debt arranger or a debt provider. Um, but this isn't a this is, isn't going to be a traditional debt um, arrangement. So we're focused on export credit agencies, um, obviously strategic material going into strategic businesses within Europe, Japan, Korea, for instance, they're our biggest markets. Therefore, their export credit agencies should be able to support. And one of the things the Australian government has done recently is announce um, funding to be set aside into its own, our own export credit agencies to help um, with critical mineral supplies. So we are hopeful and we're going through due diligence process as we speak with uh, various Australian government um, agencies, which we think will be able to offer us, um, you know, significant chunks of debt for long tenor at low interest rates, which will then hopefully attract those other ECAs from afar as well, combined with an offtake agreement for a customer in that in that jurisdiction. Well, I mean, break that down for me because um, Australian mm. government 
um, off, you know, off-take and equipment procurement. Uh, you've got export credit agencies, commercial bank. They're, they all want different things in this mix, and they all need to mm-hmm. have you know security or at least comfort from other by other people doing things. So, who needs to go first in this process to, to so the chain works? It's the biggest chicken and egg argument that uh, is is out there because the off-taker wants to see some certainty that you're going to get your funding. The the debt financier wants to see certainty that you're going to be able to repay the debt through your off-take. And then you've got equity sitting here saying, well, we'll come in late, but we want you to spend the bank's debt first. So we are juggling all three of those at the same time. And, um, you know, which one goes first, we're not too sure, but um, one of the things we have been doing a lot of lately is saying to the Australian government in particular, look, you've made public statements that this is a critical um, mineral, that uh, you need it to assist your allies and our allies in um, uh, securing supply chain. Um, you can't just sit back and be the the gap funder or the lender of last resort. We're looking for you to get on the front foot and, and you know, help drive it here. And it may all come together at the same time, but somebody's got to take the lead. But it's such a big amount that you're looking for. It's not like the Australian government, mm. state or federal, is going to come in and underwrite this thing for you. So you're going to have to take control of the sure. situation yourself. So. When do you think you're going to be able to get get some of these off-takers across the line and what percentage of your production are you trying to get covered with an off-take to enable the first person in this queue to deliver your at sure. $1 billion, uh feels yep. comfortable? Yep. Um, there's two, two aspects to the answer to that question. Um, the first is we probably need about 75 to 80%, I would expect, of our offtake um, locked away in some sort of fixed contract. Um, and no, the Australian government's not going to cough up a billion dollars, or even if it was 50% debt, they're not going to cough up 500 million. But what they may be is a cornerstone to um, for others to come in. I'll, I'll give you a, a, a real example. And the only other, um, well, there were, there were two rare earth mines operating outside of China. One is Mountain Pass in California, and the other one is Linus Corporation who operate out of Australia slash Malaysia, right? Now, last time there was geopolitical tension in the rare earth space, um, the Jap- uh, China stopped export of material to uh, Japan. Japan panicked. Uh, the Japanese government stepped in, funded a debt component for Linus, and Linus ultimately raised the rest of their their capital and built their plant. Now their their plant is similar size to ours. It's as you know uh, in terms of uh, where their market cap was and where it is now. Uh, it's a similar story, and that was all done on really on the back of um, of government funding. Okay, and, and for a billion dollar project. Right, and what's what's Plan B? Because the Australian government aren't the Japanese government. Times are tough. Right. There's a lot of debt out there. There's a lot of mining companies probably asking for the same thing. So if uh, they don't step in, what's plan B for you? Well, I'm confident that they will, but if, if they don't step in, I'm certain that uh, there's other ECAs out there with, as I said, customers in those jurisdictions that will step into the, into the breach. What um, I think we, well, not, I think what we have had feedback from those other ECAs is that, well, the Australian government has made public statement 
that there is um, money available for critical minerals. For how much? And yet, how much? Well, there's a four billion dollar defence fund that they've made out, um, available. There was a four billion dollar amount sitting in um, in the Northern Australian Infrastructure Fund. So there's a significant pool of money that they see there as being one part of their COVID recovery uh, into industries that are assisting the critical mineral supply chain. Um, and uh, there's very few pro projects in Australia uh, that are shovel ready like Arafura is. So I'd be very surprised if, if we didn't get any support. Right, but that, that four billion is going to be, there's going to be a lot of hands out for that four billion. It gets split up a, a number sure. of ways and whether or not yep. you get any, there's no certainty around that at the moment. So you're, you're saying sure. there are conversations which are going on and your hope is that that will be the case. And if you do get that, then who's the next person you go and talk to and say, look, we've got this? Um, well, it's not really the next person. It's um, people we're speaking to in conjunction with. And uh, as I said, it, it's the ECAs in, in our major trading partners uh, that we're talking to and having quite um, good conversations with at this point in time, along with also the offtake um, customers. And don't forget these offtake customers, are they're big organisations, they're global, so they have balance sheet as well. So. Um, you know, the, I wouldn't rule out any sort of uh, involvement in our funding strategy by them. I know that people are more aware now of critical mineral lists, but they've always been there. You know, they've been mm -hmm. there for decades, right? Mm -hmm. um, but we're just slightly more aware because the whole battery of um, revolution, evolution at, at the moment, yep. I think people are starting to talk that language um, now for sure. But there's a lot of hands out. There's a lot of people asking for this for this money. Um, do you think that, because what we're seeing around the world, the, the global economies, you know, there have been, you know, shutdowns uh, of, you know, the, in the automotive manufacturing uh, sector, mm. there have been incentives put in place to try and, you know, get things going again. Do you think you're just in a wait and see moment? Because, you know, it's kind of a boring phase this DFS stuff, isn't it? You kind of people are waiting around. You've, you've done everything you need to do, haven't you? Yeah, um, public statements by all the auto. Well, let's let's focus on BMW and um, and uh, let's say Volkswagen, uh, two of the largest organisation auto makers in the world. Both of them have advanced uh, their electric uh, e-mobility platforms, where they pre-COVID were saying we're moving to full electric in the next five to 10 years, they're now saying we're moving to full electric within the next three to five. Now, you know, that's just repeated over and over again at every auto maker that uh, you can think of. And this is public statements by them, not me. Um, now for that to happen, um, we, have a, we have roughly a, a three year construction period. And if they wanna be fully electric in three years time, then they need to be speaking to us now and so it's, it, it may have been a wait and see six months ago, but I think it's absolutely no longer a wait and see. And, and you, you're seeing some of the auto sector making investments into lithium and graphite and cobalt, et cetera. And I think now that they get their battery cost under control, I think the next, um, the next um, suite of minerals off the, off, the, off the rank should be neodymium, praseodymium. But tell me the difference between uh, neodymium, praseodymium, and nickel and lithium 
and graphite and all the other commodities which go into a battery who are all saying the same thing as you. We need to get going now or you're going to be running out. Look at that supply demand curve. Uh, mm. Three years, four years, five years time, there isn't going to be what you need to put in place. So why is the money going to come to you versus them? Well. I think uh, because I think most of the auto sectors got their battery te- uh, battery minerals uh, um, battery supply chain uh, sorted, and you know uh, I think uh, and you know they're quite mainstream minerals to be perfectly honest. There's existing processing for lithium, graphite, copper, nickel, you name it, cobalt, but for rare earths, the supply chain's basically out of China. And there is no real production outside of China. And China doesn't want to be the world's minor and, um, and raw material provider. It wants to be the world's number one EV provider. Uh, and when you, you know, when the auto sector employs 13% of the population in Germany, that's a lot of people out of work if all those jobs go to, to China. And this isn't being, you know, uh, anti anti-Chinese this is just a fact um, and so that's why I think ours is different because there is n- very few projects um, globally that are ready to go that are fully permitted um, and basically awaiting finance to be able to significantly feed into the supply chain when we're in production we'll we'll, we'll supply between five and ten percent of the magnet feed material required now um, that's quite a lot, even though it's a small market. So, Yeah, that's true. So here's one for you. Gold has been flying for the last year. All the money is mm. going into gold. Well, precious metals generally, right? Um, some of the returns are fantastic. So not just retail, but funds, institutions are looking there. I mean, has that been part of your problem? And if, if so, do you think a Joe Biden government is going to be good for you? Are people going to re- <laughs> feel a little bit more comfortable? Um, oh, look, I, I, I don't think so. I think if, if, um, if, people, if, if funds are putting money into gold, then it's, a, it's more of a currency play rather than, a, um, I think, a critical minerals play. Um, don't no, get me wrong, I love gold. I'm yeah, ex- well, I wasn't uh, suggesting ex- critical minerals, but in, ter- in, in terms of, you know, safe haven, you know, you look at the economy, yeah. you look at the debt packages, quantitative easing around mm. the world, you know, people are looking at, at, at gold and silver. That, you know, that, that, that was mm. my point. But, yep. so, but it possibly been to the detriment of money going into, you know, battery, battery metals. Look, you, you partly could be right there, I think. Um, I think people obviously been looking for stability in, a, in an unstable world. Um, but what we are also seeing is a lot of the funds globally are starting to look at the ne- next wave, like green energy, uh, green technologies, e-mobility, um, you know, and, and funds are looking at companies that have got a strong ESG um, profile and footprint uh, and so on and so forth. So I think you're actually going to see a, a different wave of investor coming through. And I think Biden's probably going to just enhance that with his, um, with his climate change stance and, uh, and policies. Right. Okay. So I'm sorry to make this entire interview about financing, but that's what you, you've done everything, right? Mm. The financing is the thing, thing that people keep sending questions in about or asking and want, want an idea of where you're at with that. So 
you've got various conversations going on with um, you know export um, credit agencies. You know, you get your offtake yep. stuff going on, obviously, which may not necessarily be cash in, but it gives certainty down the line. Mm-hmm. The cost of this money, you're showing a sort of just over seventeen percent IRR. You're showing a five year payback. Again, mm. today's environment is that attractive? You know, to to generalist investors to these funds when there are better return profiles out there, and does it then give us a clue to the sorts of people and the sorts of money that you're going to need to go and talk to? Uh, there's a number of aspects to that as well. Um, I think you know the ECA funding generally comes with um, uh, lower interest rates and longer tenor. Um, after that five year payback this thing's generating about 300 million odd um, free cash year on year for 30 odd years. So that's a pretty um, a pretty strong return um, after the initial paid back, albeit that the, I take it your point that the IRRs are, are modest, if anything. Um, so I think that if you, for an investor that wants in and out, um, I think, the next sort of uh, value change from our stock now, which is currently, let's say, 10 cents Australian uh, per share. Um, I think when we start um, making announcements around offtake and getting some certainty of funding, I think that will be a significant re-rating point. Um, and at, we would hope at that point in time, then we could attract the equity that that's required for the whatever percentage of the billion dollars it might be. Uh, and then I think you'll, we'll go through another hiatus where we'll be through construction, commissioning, et cetera, until we're basically into production. Um, so I think that's sort of the, the share price curve for the next little while. Um, I think too, you know, I, I just, I, I repeat the value proposition that where Linus was before their funding, Linus is now a $2 billion Australian company. Um, we, I, I don't, I don't see why we couldn't do something similar, or, or, or replicate that sort of profile. Um, so you know, uh, the cost of funds, uh, I think, uh, I think we'll be able to manage and get what we need to, um, you know, at a, in a cost-effective way. Um, but I, I think that's why it's got to be ECA-led because I don't think a commercial lending arrangement would certainly. Um, uh, stack up with the numbers. And, and do you see this kind of con- conventional, you know, 70, 30 type splits? Is that, you're not seeing any reason Look, to discount that? I, I know, I know our numbers um, say that the, we could support a 60, 60% debt, but uh, I, I'm not sure that, you know, that, that that's likely to be re- reasonable in this environment. We'll, we'll see how we go. We've actually appointed a, um, a financial advisor um, at the moment um, who, uh, for confidentiality, I, I can't really state their name at the moment, but uh, they'd be a, a global uh, investment bank. And um, they are assisting us with all that sort of modelling um, and also being intermediary to the ECAs in terms of making sure that any term sheets that we're pulling together are, uh, are meaningful from a banking perspective. Okay. Do you think you have got a good enough marketing team? Are you talking to all the right off-takers? You know, are you going to be able to get a binding contract soon? I mean, what, what sort of timeline are we looking at to get something over the line? Is it this side of Christmas? Look, 
Um, no, I, I doubt whether we have something binding this side of Christmas, um, but certainly, you know, we're targeting middle of next year for FID. So if that answers your question. Yeah, it's an answer for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I, I get it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard to know when people will, will pull the uh, trigger on the, on these things for sure. Um, but you, Look, you, I mean, but this, the question is, do you feel last... you're in the right rooms? Yeah, I do. I think we're, we're, dealing with um, either, um, you know, tier one magnet producers or um, EV or renewable component manufacturers or motor manufacturers themselves or electric vehicle producers. So I think we, we, we've got it covered off. And I think from a geographical perspective, we've got most of the world covered off as well. So do you wish you kind of started smaller instead of a billion dollar trans deal? Look, yeah, we definitely did look at that. Um, it's just the sheer logistics because we're in central Australia. Um, there's there's not much difference if we, you know, cut down the size of the plant by half. We don't actually save half the capex. So, we we have done those um, the scalability uh, design um, discussions, but. Um, we also think that um, for a reasonable investment, you also need to have a reasonable volume. And if we're going to attract big, big customers, um, we need to have, you know, uh, substance in, the, in, in, our, in being able to deliver volume um, to meet their, their aspirations. So um, we think we've got it about right. And what were the conversations with regards to moving further downstream? Obviously, at a, bil a billion bucks, you probably thought, crikey. Let's just uh, get this thing over the line. But th there must have been an option about capturing value down the chain because you're going to see more margin if you've done that. But of course, you'd be raising a lot more money. We actually went, we've, we've, we've gone both ways. Um, we've actually looked at whether we could just dig it up and ship it out, which is what a number of other companies are looking at. Now, we believe that once you do that, um, it would be very difficult to break because that, that material would have to go to China. And um, I think it'd be pretty tough once you got locked into that sort of a model to be able to raise the capital needed to build the big plant because the big, the, the extraction plant is the big cost. It's not the digging it up. That's 15% of our OPEX and CAPEX, you know, it's nothing. Um, but the real value add is, is once you've, um, once you've separated those rare earths into an oxide. So we figured let's go to an oxide. That's at least a, an entry point where we don't necessarily have to send material to China. We've got other options. If, do we go to a metal or an alloy or something else? Um, we've also looked at some of that, but um, the magnets in particular are probably a little bit one step too far. Metal and alloying is typically a um, energy intensive process. Australia is not typically a uh, energy uh, efficient or cost effective place to do that. Would we would we look at doing something with another group in a, a cheaper jurisdiction? Absolutely. Um, and in fact, some of the magnet companies we're talking to have, have actually, <coughs> excuse me, looked uh, at, at building um, uh, tolling plants uh, outside of China, China, so that um, they can actually take feedstock and keep it outside that, see, that would be a really interesting conversation because, as you say, after five years, you're throwing off a lot of cash. You've got a bit more optionality mm -hmm. at that point, so you're not you're not discounting that or removing that from the table. That's a real valuation no. at the time. Okay, yep. that's interesting. I guess yep. that's how people like mm -hmm. Linus and Mountain Pass do it. 
I think we've got to, um, you know, there's there's an argument, strong argument to say, well, you could take it those next steps, but you know, we're a billion dollar capital already. Let's uh, let's crawl before we walk. I, I couldn't agree more, Gavin. Thank you very much for that run through. Um, appreciate getting an insight as what you, the challenges you're facing, how you're addressing them, and you know what this thing looks like going forward. Um, stay in touch and let us know how you're getting on. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to CruxCast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.